Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Tyson Harold, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Next 12 and verse 1 through 11. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Who do you suppose I am? Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is this angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there, were no disturbing, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Well, thank you, Sue and Danny, for reading that. I, I wanted you to hear all of Acts chapter 12 
Uh, one, I don't think anyone wants to listen to me that long, but two, I, the, the total story, we don't have time to unpack that in a half hour this morning. There's just so much going on in Acts chapter 12, and in order for you to understand everything that happens, you really got to hear the whole account, and so I appreciate you guys reading that this morning so that we could see and hear what was going on in Acts chapter 12. At the beginning of Acts chapter 12, we're introduced to this guy named Herod, and for some of you, you would say, yes, I have a crazy family. Anybody be willing to admit you have a crazy family this morning? Yes, thank you. Uh, for some of you, that's news, apparently, as it looks down the aisle. Um, your family has nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, on Herod and his family. Herod's family is one of the most messed up. There was incest and murder and power struggles. And every time you read the New Testament, it seems like there's a Herod not far behind. And so as you do that, even a cursory reading of the New Testament, it can be really confusing because it'll mention Herod, and then you're like, wait a minute, I thought there was another Herod. And so I have a chart behind me. There's a, a code you can scan it if it would be helpful for you. It all starts, we're not going to go through the whole thing, but this is how confusing it gets. And I just want you to see this because this is how crazy it is. It starts with Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2, and he's the one that wanted to kill all the babies. And then you come along and there's, he had four wives in the red, but he actually had ten wives. We don't have room to get all his wives on there. These are just the four that, that led to some of the other leaders that were at Jesus' time. You see, then you have Herod Antipas, which was the one where Jesus appeared when Pilate said, I want nothing to do with that man. That was Herod Antipas that he went to, and those two had hated each other up until that point, but then suddenly they decided they would be friends when it was expedient for them to, to have an alliance. You've got the ones that, you know, took the head of John the Baptist. You've got Herod Agrippa I, which is who we're talking about today. There's Herod Agrippa II, which is in the book of Acts at the end. And so there's all these Herods. And as you read the New Testament, you're like, I have no clue which one did what and why and why does it matter. And the, really the point of this is they come from a long line of people who hated the Jesus movement. They hated Jesus because, not because he was a bad guy, they hated Jesus because he was a threat to their power structure. If you don't know anything about Herod, he and his family was what's called the Herodian dynasty. And they were operated as a vassal state in between Rome and the Jews, meaning that they answered to Rome, but they sought the favor of the Jews because it was expedient for them to have that power and control, and therefore that's how they, they operated. And so they had to appease Rome, but then they also had to appease the Jews, and it got really confusing. Some of the Herods liked the Jews, some of the Herods didn't like the Jews, and it was just, it's just really, as you can tell from the chart, pretty overwhelming. But the point of it is, is that they hated the Jesus movement. This shouldn't surprise any of us that there's people who hate Jesus and also us. Unfortunately, some of us were sold the lie that if you follow Jesus, everything will be sunshine in 75. And Herod and his family are proof that it doesn't always work out that way. Jesus said that we would have problems. He told us in, in John chapter 15 and 16 that in this world you will have trouble. The disciples experienced it, and we do as well. You remember as a child, there was the story of the Gospels where there was the, the story was told of that the wise men built his house upon the rock, but the foolish man built his house upon the sand. You remember that? There's a song that goes along with it. Uh, I asked Lindsay to come up and sing it. She said no. Um, but there's that story. The one thing, though, that I, I didn't realize till later in life about that story is that no matter which way you build your house, there's still a storm. And when you look at that, whatever way you choose to build your house, there's, there's still a storm. 
When you look out through the rest of the Gospels, you see story after story after story of where some things go really well for people and some things do not go well for people. In the Old Testament, all the heroes win, and in the New Testament, all the heroes die. There's an entire book of your Bible by a guy named Job that was dedicated to the suffering and enduring spirit of this man who had nothing seemed to go right. But there's also a book in your Bible called Ecclesiastes where it was everything went right for that guy's life. And they both come essentially to the same conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments. And so what do we do? Because you look at Acts chapter 12 against the backdrop of some things really go well in life and some things don't go well in life. And sometimes we pray and it works out the way we want and sometimes it doesn't. And there's a tension there that I want to look at today because we're not promised ease in this life, but we are promised help. I believe Acts chapter 12 gives us a little bit of a glimpse into that where Jesus indeed offers help. And so if you, if you are following along with what Danny and Sue are reading, it said in Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it said it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, and when he saw that this met the approval of the Jews, right, back to his power struggle, he, he sees that they're happy about it, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he turned him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, and Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. So Herod loved the approval of the Jews, and once he saw that killing James was a good thing, he said, let's, let's go ahead and seize Peter as well. It turns out that Peter most likely was going to face the same fate as James. The reason we know that is, as you look at the end of Acts chapter 12, part that we're not going to get back into right now, and it says that those soldiers who were guarding Peter were killed. It was common in the Roman world that if you were guarding a captive and that captive got free, you faced their same punishment. But because it was the festival of unleavened bread and because it was Passover, Herod knew better not to start and try and do something during that time. He killed James prior to that. He puts Peter in jail. And he's going to wait until all that calms down to appease the Jews and to keep them on his side. But it says that Herod started to persecute not only James and Peter, but also the church as well. But we find in Acts chapter 12 that Peter is guarded by four guards. And you say, why on earth would he be guarded by so many people? Well, this is not the first time that he's been in jail, if you've been following us along in Acts. And you see that the last time he got out. So Herod sees this, knows this, and he puts an additional couple guards, actually 16 guards total around him over the course of his stay in prison. Verse 5 gives us a clue, though, what everybody else was doing. So Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The church was praying. Peter is experiencing the, probably, he's probably the most safe individual in all of that area of the world at this time. He has all kinds of guards around him. He does not know his fate, but he's probably assuming James was killed, I'm probably next. And the church gathers around, and there's no record that they set up a GoFundMe for his family. There's no record that they set up a militia to go and bust him out of prison. They get together, and they do the only thing that makes sense, which is they go to start praying. You see, prayer has got to be our first response, not a last resort. And for so often in our life, when things go wrong, myself included, we try to fix it in our own power. But we see in Acts chapter 12 that the, the church realizes that Peter's in jail and their response is, let's get together and pray. It's one of the gifts that God gives us as a church 
where we can come together and we can pray for one another. That's why we asked for it earlier, because what we love to do, if we're being completely honest this morning, we love to talk about prayer, but we don't actually want to pray. We love to talk about grace, but we don't actually want to extend it. We like to talk about love, but we actually don't want to go out and show love to others. And so that's the whole point of this morning is that we're going to talk about prayer a little bit, but we also want to pray. Because we see the picture of Acts chapter 12 where the church realizes Peter's in trouble. If God doesn't intervene in Peter's life, he most certainly faces the same fate as James. And so it says that they are together earnestly praying to God. Now, I'll be the first to admit, prayer is one of the more difficult parts of our faith. It's one of the things that I probably understand the least. But whether we fully understand it or not, the command is to pray. Our jobs as Christians and the church is to pray for one another. And so if you find yourself today with your back against the wall in regards to some circumstance, can I just encourage you, if you've not tried praying, that's what you got to try. And I'll show you why as we go throughout the rest of the text. In verse 6, it says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Peter was sleeping so soundly that he had to essentially be kicked to be woken up. He's got one person on this side chained to him. He's got one person on this side chained to him. Look, if my wife's not sleeping, I'm not sleeping. I don't know how on earth he's sleeping so soundly that he had to have an angel essentially kick him to get him up. Here's a couple thoughts. I don't know why he was able to sleep so soundly. Here's, here's a couple thoughts. One, he'd been in jail before and he thought, I've done this before. It's not that big a deal. I'll eventually get out. That's one option. Uh, it could be that he had such a great confidence in Jesus at this point. You know, he didn't always have that great confidence, but after he was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus reinstates him and he's like, you know what, um, everything's going to work out okay. It could be Jesus told him, you're going to die when you're old, right? He told him, you, one day you will be old and you will die. And so he's like, I'm not that old. I just must not die. So therefore, I'll fall asleep just fine. Most likely, though, this is what I think happened. I think it's because the people were praying that he was able to sleep so soundly. It's the only logical explanation. That the church was praying, and we don't know what they were praying for, but they were praying for him. And I believe that God gave him such a, a picture of peace at that time. Even though, undoubtedly, once the festival was over, he was headed for a public trial, most likely a public execution, but he was able to sleep. If you find yourself unable to sleep, unable to trust God because you're so anxious, can I just encourage you to reach out and pray? The next time you find yourself awake in the middle of the night, here's two options. You can pray and you'll fall asleep because you'll get so bored and you'll just work your way to sleep. Or you can pray and God may still your heart to trust him in the midst of it. There's one of the great songwriters of the last 20 years is a guy named Scott Crepain. You've probably not heard of him, but I guarantee you you've heard of his work. Um, if you have small children and you've ever heard the song from Paw Patrol, Scott wrote it. Scott wrote uh, many of the songs that are on the Netflix series that you, you've watched today. He wrote a song for American Idol. He wrote a song for a lady named B.B. Rexa, which is a pop artist. But back in the 90s, he wrote a song called Sometimes He Calms the Storm, and it says this. He says, Sometimes he calms the storm with a whispered, Peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean that he will. Sometimes he holds us close and lets the winds and waves go wild. And sometimes he calms the storms, and other times he calms his child. 
I think Peter was experiencing that in real time because people were praying for him. And I think that he experienced, not the storm was removed from him, but God gave him a sense of calm and understanding that he was going to be okay in the midst of it. And my guess is that happened when the church came together and prayed. We have to be careful as people especially in the United States, of being so prideful that you don't want people to know what's going on because you might be missing out on the grace that God wants to extend to and through you through the people of God praying for you. But so often we're like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to burden somebody. I want them to know about my business. I don't, no, that's part of what God has called us to do. And so when you think of uh, Peter, I think it was probably prayer that led him to sleep so soundly. So the chains come off. He's told to grab his stuff. The gates open, and Peter thinks it's a dream. He's still confused about what's going on. He doesn't know why he slept so well. He doesn't know why he's suddenly out of jail. He just knows he was kicked and said, let's get up and let's go. Verse 11 says, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. There's a couple important clues from verse 11 that we have to look at before we move on to the last half of Acts chapter 12. Luke does something here that is incredibly insightful. He tells us that Peter knew it was everything the Jews were hoping would happen to him. Well, what did the Jews want him to happen to him? Put him in prison? No, they weren't satisfied with that. They weren't satisfied with that with Jesus. They certainly aren't going to be satisfied with that with Peter. James was killed, and so they were really excited about that because we know that Herod was, was, saw what impact that had. And Peter replies, and he says to himself, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. It's interesting, if you were to be a Jew, at this point, most of the Jesus followers were Jewish background believers. It's about to change in the next couple chapters, but as of right now, they're Jewish background, background believers. As they're hearing this account if they were to hear of somebody who was miraculously saved in the night, led by an angel and brought to freedom, what Old Testament story would come to mind, do you think? The last time an angel rescued someone and led them to freedom, it was the story of Passover. And in real time, these people are celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I believe that God gives these people and us today a picture of what Peter experienced was his own particular Exodus event. And I think Luke is trying to help us see in Acts chapter 12 that God has given us all an Exodus-style event because following Jesus can lead to persecution and problems, but it also can lead to life and deliverance. The two can be true, that life can be hard, but God can be faithful. The two can be true that sometimes things don't always, if James was to come up here today, he'd be like, wait a minute, time out. All that stuff you just talked about, I died, right? He, he would have a very different account of what happened here. But that's not what happens. We get this Exodus experience, and we may never have, never have an experience like Peter did. However, for those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we've experienced our own Exodus-style event. Jesus rescued us from ourselves and our sin, and he delivered us into a life of grace, mercy, and freedom. That is the hope of the gospel, that when you were utterly powerless and unable to do anything about your sin, God came and rescued you and led you to a place of freedom. Both now, today, in 2022, and one day in the future, when everything will be made right. 
If there was a word to look at this entire thing, if Peter and James could get together, and I'm sure they, they are together in heaven, I think they would tell us to persevere. Because it may not work out like Peter. It may work out like James in your life. But following Jesus will lead ultimately to life and deliverance. For those of you who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would implore you and encourage you, that's got to be your next step. He longs to take care of the greatest problem in your life, which is your sin, and to fix that. And he literally takes you out of your old life, your old self, and places you into a new life and new self, which is the story of the gospel. So Peter realizes God's deliverance, and he heads over to Mark's house. And in verses 12 through 16, we see, when this had dawned on him that they were going to kill him and he had been rescued, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, ran back without opening it, and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. So Mark, uh, the one that they're talking about here is Mark the gospel writer. They show up to John Mark's house where everyone's praying again, once again. They have no clue that God's already provided for Peter. They were praying earlier when they found out he was in prison. They're praying together again because that's the hope that we have is that God may intervene when we pray. He may not, too, but he may. And so they pray to that end. There's a many people praying. Rhoda answers the door. She recognizes Peter's voice. So it's not that she sees Peter. She just hears his voice. She knows him well enough to know that's Peter. And she comes back to tell everybody, and they say, you're out of your mind. Then they say, well, maybe it was his angel. There was a Jewish belief that sometimes after you died, your guardian angel would show up and, and appear. And so they thought that was the case. They never saw Peter. They just heard his voice. But they think Rhoda's out of her mind, and Peter's left at the door, just keep knocking. Now, this is what's really interesting about this particular passage and what I want to spend a lot of our time talking about in regards to prayer. A lot of times we, we see prayer and we're like, okay, yeah, I'll pray. But these people, they apparently didn't think God was going to answer their request because they're praying and they're like, ah, she's out of her mind. And you see verses in James where it says, well, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. And we see verses in James where he talks about sometimes you ask and you don't have the faith that it requires to. But apparently, in spite of our lack of faith, and even in spite of our prayers, God still works. He's not limited or bound by your uh, right speaking of prayer or the right verbiage of prayer or the right language of prayer. He simply wants you to pray. And this highlights the tension that so many of us face when it comes to prayer, is will God show up? Will he show up? If he's sovereign, why should I even pray? If he's in control of everything, why should I even pray? Well, these people had no clue what God was going to do. They just kept praying. And God intervened in a miraculous way. So miraculous that they didn't even think it was going to happen. They were shocked by it. A couple of thoughts around this to maybe help you understand this better. I remember I was uh, in a conference with uh, Tony Evans years ago, and he shared this. I may have shared this before. You remember when you were a sick child, and you're laying there in bed, and your mom gave you a washcloth or something, put it on your head, and we all know now that has nothing to do with anything. It just made us feel better. But she did that, 
And then she would usually leave the room. In this particular illustration, which breaks down after a while, your mom is like God. She knows that you're sick. She plans to go in and rescue you if it gets bad, but what is she waiting for you to do? She's waiting for you to cry out and ask for help. In the same way, God is sovereign. He knows all things, and he's, he's certainly going to let some things happen, and he's going to let some things not happen, but he's waiting for us as his children to cry out and ask for him to come in and intervene. And sometimes it works in, in different ways, but I appreciated that example that Dr. Evans shared years ago for me to understand that, look, sometimes we don't see all the details, but just like your mom understood, she gave you Tylenol, and most likely for the next three to four hours, you're going to be sleeping okay, but there's going to come a time in the middle of the night where you're going to wake up, and you're going to need her help again, and she's going to come running back in to help you out. I believe that God oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes works in that same way. He knows that you're sick, and he plans to help you, but he's asking for you to reach out to him. We also see this in Mark chapter 9 when the boy is demon-possessed and the disciples come confused to Jesus and they're like, you told us we could heal all these people and this guy isn't getting healed. What's going on? He says this kind can only come out, this particular demon can only come out by prayer and fasting. And so Jesus asked the father of the boy who's sick and he says, well, do you believe that I could make him well? And he says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That's probably the way most of us pray if we're being honest. Yeah, I believe God can help me. I believe he can show up. I believe he can do what I'm asking him to do, but I also, there's a really big part of me that I'm praying, but I'm not sure about this. And we see this in real time in verses 12 through 16 where it plays out, where we see these people praying, but they're like, I don't know if I can trust God, and, and I just want to encourage you today, you're not alone if that's how you pray. Matter of fact, I think these people probably never questioned whether they should pray again after this event. Once they finally figured out it was Peter at the door, they probably never questioned whether they should pray again. They saw God provide in such an incredible way. Sometimes when we don't get the answer we want, we say, well, I'm not going to do that because that just didn't work out. Keep in mind, God is working so many other things in play than what's just happening in your, your life. And sometimes the best no you could get is what's the best thing for you. And so we don't have to fully understand prayer to pray. We're just called to pray. One of the shortest verses as we go throughout the, the uh, New Testament is to rejoice always and to pray continually. It may not be this, a lot of times we think this is like a prepared speech before God. Like I got like my five bullet points, this is what I'm asking, or we treat them like a genie in a bottle, like today I would like this, 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 and this. Well, no, in regards to what Paul told the Thessalonians, it should just be a continuous conversation. Sometimes you do have a time set aside where you can pray and ask specific things, but for the most part, it should just be a conversation that happens throughout the day with the Lord. But these people had set aside this time, and they had set it aside so that they could pray together. It goes on, Peter is headed out to go on to what God has for him next, the guards are brought in and in question. They're looking for Peter. They still can't find Peter. So Herod kills all the guards. And he kills all the guards. And then we find Herod at the end of this. It gives us a little bit of picture of what happened to Herod. And the reason I want to show you this for just a few moments is, or talk about this for just a few moments, is Herod Agrippa I killed James 
planned to kill Peter, and then he shows up, he leaves Jerusalem, and he heads to Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of that day, and he gives this great speech about how great he is, and the people of Tyre and Sidon, which would be further north from them, they were not a part of his kingdom, but they got food from him. And he shows up, and he gives this, this great thing, and they tell him, oh, this must be the voice of a God. Just as God delivered Peter, there was divine deliverance. There's also divine judgment. Those two things are coming again one day. Divine deliverance is coming for you and for me one day when we no longer deal with the sin that we face. We no longer live in a corrupt, fallen world. Divine deliverance is coming, but divine judgment is also coming, which is why we need Jesus all the more. And in this particular instance, Herod faces divine judgment because they say, oh, you must be a God. He does nothing to quench that, and he kills them right there in the spot. Now, for those of you who are skeptical of all this Jesus stuff, and you're like, where's your proof for that? Well, it's pretty cool. You can make your way over to Caesarea, and you can see the place where Herod dropped dead. I got the chance to see this in 2014. I had the blessing to go over there and travel and see this, and there's a picture of this is the, the ruins of that area. And on that stage, just beyond those black chairs, is the spot where Herod dropped down. And God delivered divine judgment in his life. Now the reason I want to share this with you is because I want you to see that when the people were praying, they had no idea that God was going to handle this in the way that he was going to. Just a few, literally days later, Herod is dead. But they kept praying. The other thing I want to share about this, because this matters, remember there's lots of Herods, they're all crazy, Herod Agrippa the One is dead on the stage. Herod Agrippa II, do you remember when he comes on the scene? Acts chapter 25. When Paul appears before Felix, also one of the crazy Herod's relatives, then he says, I want to appear before Agrippa II. When he appears before Agrippa II, he tells Paul, if you'd not made your claim to Caesar, I would have let you go free from here. If you can bring that picture back up, Larry, I want to show you something. Herod Agrippa II made the decision about Paul in the building that's up and to the right where that white tin is in the corner. And I believe he looked over what had happened to his father on the steps there at the amphitheater, and he said, I want nothing to do with these Jesus people. Because he said, if you hadn't made your appeal to Caesar, I would have sent you on packing. So apparently Herod the Agrippa II figured it out. In Acts 25, you can read all about it where he figures it out. But the point of that is to show you God is going to offer divine deliverance for you today. And it often comes through our prayer. And he's also going to offer divine judgment one day. And that you are not going to stop his plans. And I remember standing there on the beach of the sea, Mediterranean Sea and just being blown away. I mean, there was some really cool places to visit in Israel, but this was the one for me that just did it. Like, oh my goodness. Herod Agrippa II saw this and said, I want nothing to do with these people because he had seen what God had done. Then it ends in verse 24 and says, but the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Here's the thing. No ruler, no authority, no lack of faith, no prayer or not praying or anything is gonna stop God and his plans. And so the command for you and I today is to simply pray. We don't know. That's one of the mysteries of a little thing we call faith. But the call is for us to pray, and so as we look to pray today, we're going to spend a few moments. I'm going to close our time here real quick, and then uh, Doug and Abby Wicker are going to come and pray. As we, as we end our time in corporate prayer, uh, this is one of those things, especially as a kid, I was always like, this is like nap time. No, that's not what this is. This is not nap time. 
while you just kind of listen to somebody pray. Uh, they're going to share some requests, and if you're like, yeah, I, you can pray right along with them, or you can pray your own prayers at the same time. Good thing is God can figure it all out. And so Doug and Abby are going to come and spend some time here as we go to pray. Uh, I'll go ahead and close us as we get ready. Father, we are so grateful for your word and the reminders from it today to help us see how good you are. And God, I believe that whether James was standing here today or Peter was standing here today or Rhoda was standing here today, they would tell us of your faithfulness. And God, I know in a room this big, there are people who are hurting, some that are happy, some that are in between. So God, help us that in spite of our circumstances, we can see your goodness and grace this morning. And we thank you for the time we have now to spend in prayer. In Jesus' name. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.